Good evening, everyone. As promised, this week we're going to talk about the rise of the modern voluntary health organization. These are organizations that aim to combat a disease, disability, groups of diseases or disabilities, or just improve the health of certain people. Might be a bit of a weird thought, but organizations like this didn't always exist. We're going to talk today about some of the earliest organizations, which of course play a huge role in modern public health. Now, some similar organizations that advocated for public health causes, like worker conditions or certain diseases, have existed before the 20th century. But it's at this point that they become much more widespread. There are broadly four kinds of voluntary health organizations. You have those concerned with specific diseases, like the ALS Association, which was helped by the Ice Bucket Challenge you might remember a while back. You've got your organ-specific organizations, like the American Heart Association, which tackles everything heart-related besides your dating problems. Next, you have agencies focusing on specific groups of people, such as a local organization here in Maryland called Healthcare for the Homeless, which does exactly what it sounds like. Finally, those that fight health problems that affect the community broadly, like Mental Health America, which just combats mental health problems across the board. There are far too many important organizations to walk through the history of them all, so let's just look at one that arose around this time. The National Tuberculosis Association is one of the oldest agencies to advocate for public health in the United States. It's a lot less relevant these days, considering tuberculosis is mostly a thing of the past, with only about 9,000 cases in 2019. But that's in large part due to this organization, and back in the time of its founding, tuberculosis was a leading cause of death for Americans. Clearly their efforts were pretty effective, especially considering that in 1973 they changed their name to the American Lung Association, because so much progress on tuberculosis had been made that they expanded to other diseases. Let's start way back in 1882, when Robert Koch discovered that a bacteria was responsible for tuberculosis. Doctors in Great Britain, France, and several European countries realized that there needed to be a centralized effort to fight tuberculosis, and new organizations were created in each country to do just that. In the United States, these did not go unnoticed, and in 1889, the New York Public Health Department released some leaflets. But unlike in last week's episode, the New York Health Department wasn't some great pioneer this time, and their educational efforts on TB didn't really go anywhere. Enter Dr. Lawrence Flick, who in 1892 organized the first meeting of the Pennsylvania Society for the Prevention of Tuberculosis. He was inspired by the work of those European physicians. This organization was the first of its kind to combine both professionals, like doctors, and lay people together to combat a specific disease. Their goals included educating people about tuberculosis, helping the poor with prevention and treatment, working with government health departments, and advocating for new laws that would help fight the disease. That list probably sounds pretty standard to us, who hasn't heard of at least a few health organizations that do these things. But at the time, this was new ground. Flick's work inspired copycats in other states, and by 1904, 23 different state and local associations had been formed across the country. Finally, it was decided that a nationwide organization needed to be formed, and so the first meeting was held right here in Baltimore where the National Association for the Study and Prevention of Tuberculosis was formed. Luckily, they shortened this to the National Tuberculosis Association about a decade later, which is what I'm going to call it in this episode. One of the first problems the newly formed National Tuberculosis Association faced was money. 
Their mission to stop tuberculosis, or TB for short, was a noble cause, but they still needed cash to get anything done. For example, in 1907, a specialty tuberculosis treatment center in Delaware was on the brink of bankruptcy. They needed just $300, and when one of the doctors mentioned the issue to his cousin, Emily Bissell, she got to work. At some point, she had read about the idea of selling special seals or stamps to raise money, which had been first done in Denmark. Bissell, a Red Cross volunteer, designed the first Christmas seal, selling them for just a penny a pop that holiday season. By the end of the holidays and after an endorsement by President Roosevelt, they raised ten times their goal, selling several hundred thousand seals, and a new fundraising and awareness tactic was born. The program was so successful that the Red Cross and the National Tuberculosis Association actually continued to partner selling such letter seals for a decade. In 1919, the association raised $4 million, or about $60 million in today's money. Not bad for such an early iteration of this idea. Although I personally haven't bought any, it seems that Christmas steals are still sold today by the association to help raise money to fight lung cancer, asthma, and air pollution. And I certainly see the influence of this approach on other fundraising efforts by modern health organizations. For example, Livestrong bracelets, which were all the rage back in the 2000s, at least here in the US, were a little trinket sold by a non-profit organization to raise funds for cancer research. Likewise, I've seen many people over the years with various pins or ribbons affixed to things, which are often sold by health nonprofits to help raise funds and awareness. The large amount of funds raised were then used by the National Tuberculosis Association for research, building and maintaining treatment centers, and of course for the education of the general public. Some highlights include a campaign to stop spitting, once it was discovered that tuberculosis bacteria could actually live outside the body in mucus and saliva. In many places, spitting on streets and in public places was outlawed, and advertisements warning against the, quote, filthy habit were everywhere. In 1915, the association also launched a children's crusade. Luckily, it wasn't like the historical one, but instead a program where children were recruited to sell Christmas seals for the organization. Children who sold seals and followed good health guidelines could be promoted, from squire to knight and then to Knight Bannerets, and finally to Knights of the Round Table, in a nerdy, adorable, and yet effective public health campaign. By 1919, there were three million such knights, and two years later, it was recommended that every elementary school should have similar programs. Over the next decades, the association would help fund vital research, some of which we've discussed on this podcast. A vaccine was in use by the 1930s, and the antibiotic streptomycin was discovered in the 1940s which you can hear about more in episode 1.6 if you are so inclined. And of course today, tuberculosis is quite rare here in the United States. Unsurprisingly, the great success of the association attracted a lot of attention, and soon other groups were being formed. New societies were formed to combat sexually transmitted diseases, mental illness, heart disease, infant paralysis, diabetes, cancer, the list goes on and on. And many of them adopted similar fundraising practices. In fact, there might have been too many new societies being formed. By 1920, there were concerns that all these agencies were redundant or competing with each other in unproductive ways. So, in 1921, the National Health Council was created to study the extent and effectiveness of voluntary health agencies in the United States. The goal was basically to help ensure that all these nonprofit organizations were actually helping and as efficiently as possible. 
1941, for example, they started a study of the numerous health organizations, sending observers to some 700 health agencies across the country. They found a whole lot of good being done, although also that some of the fears were warranted. Many organizations were spending resources doing the same thing, and sometimes groups were competing with each other, even though they really all were fighting to improve public health. Some of these problems still persist to this day, as does the National Health Council, but I'm sure they're continuing to work on it. For sure, though, huge strides in public health have often been made thanks to the efforts of the many voluntary health organizations. The education, awareness, funding, and lobbying over more than 100 years now has made incalculable change. I mean, I mean that. I literally cannot find statistics on this. The effects are simply too far-reaching. But think about in your personal life, how many diseases do you know of that you personally haven't been affected by? Rattle them off in your head? At least for me, it's a lot, although I guess I do work in healthcare, so maybe I'm a bit of an exception. But regardless, I believe that without these voluntary health agencies working over the decades, you probably wouldn't have heard of a lot of these diseases. And simultaneously, some diseases you never hear of at all because they've been stamped out. So, if I've convinced you that these organizations do really important work, great. Maybe go buy some seals or stamps or wristbands. And if you have the means, I've plopped a link to the American Lung Association's donation page in the show notes. I'm not being sponsored or anything, I just think they do good, important work, and clearly have been for a very long time. That's it for this week. Next week, we're going to discuss some improved understanding of nutrition, which is going to be a huge deal for public health. As always, thanks for listening. If you're enjoying the show, please rate or review us on Apple Podcasts, or just tell a friend. Thanks, too, go out to Jojo Tang for editing, Angie Lee for our cover art, and Muse Open for this music.